Exodus chapter 24, verses 12 through 18 is the sermon text. Hear the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain And a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, again, as we come to the preaching of uh, your word, uh, which is admittedly, uh, and I as the preacher of all people admit to you, it is a a mundane task. Uh, It is, uh, by human estimation, something which is weak, and uh, even, according to the flesh, something that's worthless, at least very foolish. And uh, we ask you, O God, that even as Moses experienced on the mountain in the weakness of the flesh, having not eaten Uh, for so many days, uh, that you are pleased to demonstrate uh, your glory and uh, to enable us to commune with you through uh, weak vessels and weak instruments, and even as we experience our own weakness ourselves. And so, Father, we ask you that through the preaching and even through the the ordinariness of of your word itself, uh, what an ordinary book the Bible seems, at least to the flesh, uh, that, that the very power and the very light of the truth might uh, shine forth upon us this evening. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we concluded the covenant ceremony, what uh, I described in essence as the gospel of the Old Testament, I think uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a passage which had closer parallels to the cross in that passage, as indeed Hebrews chapter 9 indicates. Uh, the, the ratifying of the covenant through the ceremony of blood, which includes both the, sh- the, the shedding and the sprinkling of blood. The question now becomes, the covenant having been ratified or inaugurated, however you wish to look at it, what comes next? Uh, the people are still at the mountain. And what is it that the Lord wishes to do with them next and to reveal with them? Uh, one thing that we might assume, but we would be wrong, is that at this point, covenant being ratified, that they would simply resume their journey and march on to the promised land. But uh, that isn't what we find. What we find rather is that the covenant being uh, um, ratified, the Lord has more to tell Moses, a great deal more in fact. Uh, He calls him back in order for him to receive another set of laws, and this time of a different nature. There had been Uh, After the giving of the Ten Commandments, something of an exposition of the Ten Commandments in chapters 21 through 23, moral and civil laws or judgments, they were actually called, these give way to ceremonial. As Kylan Dillich say in a quote that I think very helpfully summarizes 
the transition that occurs in the second part of chapter 24, the second journey up the mountain, to give a definite external form to the covenant concluded with his people and construct a visible bond of fellowship in which he might manifest himself to the people and they might draw near to him as their God. Jehovah told Moses that the Israelites were to erect him a sanctuary that he might dwell in the midst of them. In other words, now that the Lord has bound himself to the people and ratified that covenant with blood, the most natural and obvious step for the Lord to take was to construct a sanctuary in which uh, he might dwell with the people. Uh, As I'm about to say, he was dwelling with the people at Mount Sinai, but they couldn't very well stay there forever, not if they were to complete their journey, but in, uh, in, in building a tabernacle and in equipping priests to minister in the tabernacle, uh, you might say God was someone they could take with them. And of note, the instructions here that are given, beginning in chapter 25, are given solely and precisely by the Lord. Now that precision is something that will require a bit of explanation. Because this is one of the more detailed accounts that we have in the Bible. A detail which perhaps does not interest us as New Covenant believers, but I'll argue that they ought to. The people's contribution on the other side was merely the material and the effort. But as to the design of the tabernacle, as well as the garments of the priesthood and the function of the priests, man played no part. For what was being revealed to Moses was a pattern of the heavenly uh, heavenly tabernacle, as we know from Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 9. And this was something that could only be revealed or could only come rather by revelation, not by human imagination. God was not leaving man to decide the best way for God to dwell with man. Rather, God was describing his own ideas about that. Now, I want to say a few things about what we have in verses 12 through 18. But the reality is that verses 12 through 18 merely serve as a prelude uh, to verses uh, to chapters 25 through 31. These verses just tell us Moses went back up the mountain. But again, the question which we have is, why did he go back up the mountain? And what is it the Lord had to say to him there? Uh, and, and, uh, and, and in many ways, that answering that question, which will be to summarize the upcoming chapters 25 through 31, uh, will be the main burden of the sermon. But I want to notice a few features of the text here, verses 12 through 18. Uh, the first thing that we see uh, is the tablets of stone, verse 12. Come up uh, to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments, which I have written, that you may teach them. And uh, as uh, we saw at the end of the episode, uh, that's exactly what happens. In verse 18 of chapter 31, we see that the Lord gives them the tablets. And then those are, in fact, the tablets that Moses comes down with the mountain and he, he, he casts them on the ground and breaks them. But uh, the tablets of stone obviously become uh, a, a crucial feature of this new section. Uh, this new meeting between Moses and the Lord. And the question is, how are we to look at the tablets of stone? What did they represent? Well, it's interesting uh, to, to think of what is said about them. Uh, the tablets of stone were unique in many ways. Uh, they, we, we could say very, very clearly, were the word of God. But there was uh, a few unique features. One was that God not only spoke this word to Moses... But he also wrote it himself. He wrote it on the tablets with his own finger, uh, metaphorically, obviously. 
And then what we notice in the next chapter is that these uh, were to be placed in, uh, into the Ark of the Covenant under the mercy seat, underscoring their sacredness. That's something we'll be able to consider in the upcoming sermon, the Word of God dwelling in that position. But these were the words of God, which God was telling to Moses and which God would then write himself, themselves. Excuse me, Moses, the words of God, which God was telling Moses and which Moses would tell. Words that Moses received from the Lord. And the faithfulness of Moses that we hear about in Hebrews chapter 3, he was a faithful servant over the house of God, is seen in the fact that Moses as a prophet or as a minister was faithful to the word of God. When God told Moses, I want you to tell them what I am telling you and to preserve this as the truth and not to accommodate the message because they didn't like it and we're about to find out how much they didn't like it and how stiff-necked they were. Nevertheless, Moses remained to the bitter end, a faithful servant over the house of God. His faithfulness was seen in his adherence to the word of God. We never find Moses giving the people anything but the word of God. Number two, Mount Sinai itself. Uh, Now, the connection between Sinai and the tabernacle I just spoke of, but let me say it again. The mountain was, for the time being, the place where the people met with God. It was the place where the Lord was manifesting uh, his own glory and his presence and his will to the people. But as I said, the people couldn't very well stay at Mount Sinai. Nevertheless, uh, not if they were to get to the promised land. Nevertheless, for the time being, this is where they met with the Lord. It was here that he gave the Ten Commandments. It was here that he gave uh, the instructions with regard to the tabernacle so that they might take his presence with them. It was ascending into the mountain, we read, that Moses met with God. And it was here at Mount Sinai that the people not only met with God, but they came into covenant with God. But another thing that we find in the mountain, number three, the third feature, is the cloud that covered the mountain and in which the glory of the Lord was displayed, which has been indeed uh, the hallmark, I think uh, we would agree, of the book of Exodus, the the whole idea of the glory of God, which I think in, in studying the tabernacle, we will have ample opportunity to consider and explore together. The glory uh, which the Lord manifested to the people in so many ways. And here, uh, one of the things that we notice about the glory of God is something that we've noticed before. And that is, uh, interestingly, I almost said paradoxically, but I don't think that's fair. But interestingly, uh, that God is as concerned to conceal his glory as he is to reveal it. And in many ways, that is nothing unique to the old covenant. It's something that we find in the new covenant as well. For the glory of God appeared in a cloud. That is, rather, it was concealed by the cloud itself and was only really visible to Moses once he entered in and beheld the glory of God. But even still, as, uh, as we see that the cloud concealed the glory of God, at the same time, we recognize, as the scripture plainly tells us, that it also manifested the glory of God, even as it concealed it. 
And God's glory is often like that, as I say. Uh, Not just as we find in the Old Covenant, but in the New Covenant. If you read the Gospels, you often find Christ revealing even as he's concealing. If you think of the parables, or if you think of his own person, in the Incarnation or the Cross, so often that principle is at work. Matthew Henry says, He so shows himself to us as at the same time to conceal himself from us. And like I said, God is like that. Who are we to question him? But how can one read the book of Exodus? And indeed, how could these people have witnessed all these things and not have been impressed with this singular fact, namely the glory of God? The the glory which could be seen, which covered the mountain and which Moses was especially privileged to enter as we'll later see a glory which transformed his likeness and his face shone. That brings me to the last feature, and that is Moses' communion with God. This is primarily an account of Moses and the Lord meeting together on the mountain. And it is as God calls him up in these verses that leads us to consider chapters 25 through 31, what the Lord told him. But Moses' ascent into the mountain was an ascent into the cloud, into the presence of God, where he was able to behold the glory of God and there commune with the Father. It was a communion, we notice, however. That he must wait for. Six days he waited. But which was worth waiting for. As God. uh, As communion with God always is. And especially here. We see not only that Moses communed with God. And that this communion communion consisted. Of all the prior features. The word of God. The glory of God. uh, And so on. But here also a new feature is added. And that is of the 40 days in which he fasted. It's the last thing we see. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Perhaps a detail you would just pass over. But it is, out, it is actually something which is highly significant. And which explains to us the nature of Moses' communion with God here. As we'll later see, the significance of the number 40 uh, comes up again and again in subsequent passages of Scripture. Although this is the first. We find in the life of Elijah, we find it in the life of our Lord in the wilderness in his temptation. We find it in the life of the wilderness communion or community rather who is now at the foot of the mountain and who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And as this pattern recurs, that of the 40, we notice two features that are always present uh, that are present here for Moses and which describe the essence of his communion with God on the mountain. In every case, the number 40 accounts uh, or uh, amounts rather to the same thing, and that is a, a period first of testing and purifying. While at the same time, as man begins in his own weakness to feel tempted and tested, teaching the same lesson that God is able to support man in his weakness. And that man does not live, as Moses will later say to the people, and Jesus will quote, in the midst of his 40 days of fasting, that man does not live by bread alone. And so there was something about uh, this experience which Moses had on the mountain that was glorious, but which could only be experienced through human weakness. Much as Paul later says, when he is weak, then I am strong. It was for that reason that God afflicted him. With the thorn in the flesh, it was to enable him to experience the grace of God. So it was for Moses. When I am weak, then he is strong. 
That is the lesson of the mountain. And you can see how that has uh, enormous uh, application for us as we consider the, the value of communion with God. It's worth waiting for. It, uh, it is something that is experienced not in human strength but human weakness. But I really don't want to make that the point of the sermon. Really, as I said, it, it, our, our concern is why did God call him up to the mountain and what did the Lord have to say to him? And so these verses really serve as a prelude to what is to come, what is another major section of Exodus and something that becomes a dominant strain in the remainder of the Pentateuch and indeed the life of Israel and which is ultimately brought into the new covenant, but it's introduced here. And so my second point is a prelude to the sermons on chapters 25 through 31, where we see what the Lord, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and we see all that he told him. And then when he was done, he gave him the tablets and he sent him back down the mountain. What we find here again, as I indicated, is not the moral and the civil, but the ceremonial. We've moved beyond, you might say, the Ten Commandments. We are in a new arena. We are considering the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the ceremonial law. But there uh, is a mistake that we could make in studying this section. Uh, as we will notice again and again, the, the, the uh, intense amount of detail that the Lord prescribes with respect to the tabernacle and the priesthood and the offerings and so forth. We'll notice that again and again. And the mistake would be to read it for its own sake, just out of curiosity. I wonder what it was like for Moses and the people uh, to to, uh, experience the tabernacle and to meet with the Lord there and to have their life depend on the priesthood. But the reality is that we're not Jews. And so I have to say, if that is all uh, we were really doing, I, I don't think that this could really sustain my attention for very long. What do we have to do, after all, with the temple and the priests? The answer is nothing. In fact, that is part of the glory of the new covenant, especially as uh, the confession rightfully says that the freedom which believers enjoy now in Christ under the new covenant is a freedom from the yoke, it says, of the ceremonial law. There was something burdensome about all this. And we're not meant to go back to this in any ways. And so if we were left with this procedure, uh, and that is uh, just to study it for its own sake out of curiosity, Frankly, the only thing uh, to do with chapters 30, uh, 25 through 31 would be to sum it all up in one sermon and to move on. Because, as I said, there's so much detail, which seemingly has little to interest us or to hold our attention for long. But that's not what I propose to do. For in many places, the New Testament teaches us that there is, in fact, a deep symbolism in these things that is only ever realized in the New Testament and the New Covenant, which tells us, as I plan to say over and over again, that the true significance of the details was not found in their own sake or in the Old Covenant, but that they were only ever realized in the New Covenant. One of the things that we notice, and surely we are struck by this in our reading of the Gospels and the letters of Paul and of Peter and of Hebrews, is how often the ceremonial law is cited in the New Covenant. Now, very often it is cited in the negative, where it is being negated or abolished because we recognize these things are summed up and fulfilled in Christ. And as I just said, the freedom of the new covenant is the putting off of these things. And yet at the same time, very often, as we'll see, it is these very things that provides the imagery and the structures 
which explain the essence of salvation which is found in the new covenant. So often Jesus speaks of his ministry in terms of the ceremonial law. Paul likewise doing the same. Peter doing the same. But especially, especially the book of Hebrews unfolding for us the typical significance of the ceremonial law, that is, the typology that was present in the ceremonial law. I'm going to define what typology is at the end of the sermon. I won't do so now for that reason. But using the New Testament then as our companion, and not reading this for its own sake, but again and again saying, what does the, Old, or the New Testament have to say about this particular feature, whether it is the tabernacle, the priesthood, the garments, or whatever? We will as Christians find deep meaning and significance in every single detail. For we are told that each detail given by God was patterned after the heavenly realities. The earthly tabernacle after the heavenly. The earthly priest after the heavenly priest, Jesus Christ. In both of these earthly forms, we see the heavenly and we anticipate them. And what this means is that As I said last time, the very structures of redemption are here put in place through the ceremonial law, particularly with respect to atonement, which we find at the cross. The same features that are found in the new covenant are found first in the old covenant. That is not to say that there is always at every point a one-to-one correspondence. Typology never works like that. But there is always a typological significance to be found in every detail. Always something that anticipates the greater realities as revealed in the new covenant. And even that which is found in heaven itself. Now I should also say that I have another companion which will not surprise you. But I just have to be honest about this. It's a companion I'm going to be relying on a great deal, even for this sermon as I close it out. And that is in addition to Hebrews and its exposition of the ceremonial law, uh, Voss's biblical theology uh, is just wonderful in describing the significance of the tabernacle and the priesthood, especially in these chapters, chapters 25 through 31. And so uh, I will admittedly be... uh, Quoting Voss extensively and depending upon him. Now, this is a prelude. I am just uh, wanting to give you a basic sense of what is coming. And I want to give you uh, the three main features of what is about to be revealed to Moses and to us. And the first thing with regard to the ceremonial law is not the priesthood, but the tabernacle. And we notice this becomes the immediate focus in chapter 25. Again, not the priest, but the tabernacle first. For there can be no priesthood without a tabernacle. Or a sanctuary in which to minister on behalf of the people. And it is here as well, as we will see at the end of the book of Exodus, that the glory of God rushes in and fills. Exodus chapter 40. God powerfully manifests his glory in the tabernacle which they built. And that's how Exodus closes, as you know. We have the the instructions here. And then at the end we have the building of the tabernacle. And then the Lord inhabits the tabernacle with his glory. And there are a few comments I wish to make with regard to the tabernacle. And this will provide, in some measure, the basis of future sermons. Which, again, uh, I found uh, 
uh, much in Voss to be helpful. First, in agreement with Kyle and Dillich, Voss says, as we think of the significance of the tabernacle, he says that it embodies the eminently religious idea of the dwelling of God with his people. And so as we think of what the tabernacle represented, that is what it represented primarily. And I think I've said that enough by now that we should be clear about that. But Voss actually goes further when he says that it is a concentrated theocracy. And if you remember uh, what a theocracy is, it is uh, the blending together or the intermingling of the civil and the ceremonial. And if anything, what we discover is that the ceremonial takes the uh, takes the preference And it is as the Lord inhabits the tabernacle that he rules the people. It is in that sense that Voss describes it as a concentrated theocracy. Let them make me a sanctuary, the Lord says, that I may dwell among them. Verse 8 of chapter 25, as we'll see next time. But if you think of what the Lord was seeking to accomplish, why uh, he needed a sanctuary. It was not for his own sake. The Lord did not need a house in which to live or to dwell. It was rather for the sake of the people, which is what the whole ceremonial law was meant to embody and to represent. It was the people who needed a place to meet with God. And in reality, the same thing is true today. But there was something especially important about the tabernacle in the Old Covenant, where God was locally present and where he was manifesting his grace to the people. But the second thing that we see about the tabernacle is that it was a place of worship. And this becomes obvious when we recognize that uh, the old covenant worship was that which was prescribed in the ceremonial law and therefore which was practiced and observed in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And when we realize in terms of Israel's theocracy that the religious Godward elements of that theocracy were associated with the tabernacle and the priesthood. And it was here that the means of grace were made available to the old covenant saints, much as we come to church today and find the means of grace which are available to the new covenant saints. Well, the tabernacle is where the old covenant saints uh, met with God and had grace ministered to them through his appointed means. especially through the sacrifices and the offerings which the priest had made, and even the offerings which the people made. However little uh, those sacrifices, uh, however little grace they contained or conveyed, or, or no, I think contained is the right word, however much they contained in themselves as sacrifice, as sacrifices, I mean, they were things which were instituted by God. And they were pointers to the faith of the Old Testament saint to the once for all sacrifice for Christ. And so, no, the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin. They were not saving in themselves. And in themselves, they conveyed no grace to the people. But as they were pointers to the sacrifice that would and were appointed by God for that reason as types and signs, they were indeed able to communicate grace to the people and nourish their faith because they were connected sacramentally or typologically to the once for all sacrifice on the cross. And so we are able to see in those sacrifices a real sacramental character 
to convey grace to the people, just as we find at the Lord's Supper and in baptism today. Those things are not in themselves saving, but as they are connected spiritually to salvation itself or to the saving event on the cross, they become means of grace to the people. The tabernacle was a place of grace. The tabernacle was also patterned after the heavenly tabernacle, as we've seen. And the significance of it was not to become an end unto itself, but to point to that greater reality. Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 9. I don't want to dwell on that point, however. The last thing that Paul says, and again, this is where we find uh, the New Testament using the language of the Old Covenant to explain salvation to the people, is that the tabernacle pointed directly to the body of Jesus Christ, so that his body is said to be the tabernacle. Now, this is something Jesus says himself explicitly. A connection that he makes clear to us, even if perhaps the connection is not clear. A connection that is perhaps harder to see than in the other points. Though it is a connection we must see, since Jesus, uh, again, makes such clear statements to this effect, such as John chapter 2. But the association is perhaps not so hard to recognize once we realize what it was in essence that the tabernacle represented in the Old Covenant. And seeing that, we see indeed that Jesus' body represented the same thing. Remember, what the tabernacle represented was God dwelling with his people locally. What the body of Jesus represented was exactly the same thing. The local presence of God dwelling among men. And it is in that sense that we understand the incarnation of Jesus Christ representing exactly the same truth. So that he was able to speak of his body as the tabernacle. And also that is which, uh, as what supplants the tabernacle of the old covenant. You remember what the angel says to Mary. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so Voss says, in him will forever will be forever perpetuated all that the tabernacle and temple stood for. Again, the localized presence of God. So the tabernacle comes first. After that comes the priesthood uh, in chapters, uh, well, I'm not sure exactly, uh, 27, 28, and so on. And there's, again, a great amount of detail. Which perhaps, admittedly, as you're reading through your Bible, and I hope you are, year by year, whether McShane or whatever, uh, perhaps maybe you're skimming uh, those portions. Uh, But I'm saying we don't want to do that in the preaching. Because uh, all of this detail is immensely important, we discover. Details such as the garments, the priestly line, the consecration, the priestly offerings and activities in the tabernacle, and on and on we will be able to go. Again and again, we will find uh, the, the, the essence or the stuff of the priesthood outlined for us in details, perhaps too detailed for our liking. Again, as new covenant believers who have shed the yoke of the ceremonial law. And yet when we find and certainly as we've been equipped uh, with a study of the book of Hebrews, that these are the very things, the stuff of the priesthood are the very things that we find in Christ's own priesthood. His later and better and perfected priesthood, we are at once arrested by every detail. For in each there is a glimmer, and perhaps more than a glimmer, of Christ's future glory 
as seen in his priesthood to come, again, as outlined in Hebrews, whether by way of contrast or fulfillment or perfection, every detail and every feature of the priesthood will have the dual capacity at once of pointing to Christ's ministry, while at the same time pointing to its own inadequacy. Again and again, you see, that is the point being highlighted in Hebrews, and it will become obvious as we look to these things as they are found in the Old Covenant. Especially the argument is found in Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 7 through 10. But in reality, if you remember uh, the outline of the book of Hebrews, it's really in chapter 2 that the priesthood is introduced to us. Priesthood of Jesus Christ, patterned after the priests of the Old Testament. Because every priest shares certain things in common. And it is well that we familiarize ourselves with the priesthood so that we might familiarize ourselves with our great high priest who is in heaven. And so I think the thing that I'm most excited about as we begin this new section, having just concluded a few months ago the book of Hebrews, is now to consider these very same arguments, but not from the vantage point of Hebrews, but from the vantage point of Exodus, which forms the basis and the foundation for the arguments of Hebrews, and to see those two things standing side by side. And so, in essence, uh, to be honest, uh, in many ways, to preach Hebrews again. Or at least preaching both together. But the third thing that we find is the significance of the ceremonial laws in general. And here indeed we might ask, as Paul later does, of the law, and he's speaking of the moral law, why then the law? That's Galatians chapter 3. But specifically with regard to the ceremonial law. Why or what, rather, does it add to the moral law? What was its specific purpose and function? And to a very large degree, we've already answered the question in considering the two main features of the ceremonial law, namely the tabernacle and the priesthood. But let me try to look at the issue more broadly, very briefly. And here again, I'm dependent on Voss. And you remember I said we would come back to typology, and this is where we do so. These laws, he says, all have a symbolic and a typical function. And they're not the same. Symbols and types. As symbols, all of the ceremonial law corresponded to present spiritual truths and realities, much as we would find today in our own experience with the sacraments of the new covenant. They presently correspond to, uh, to spiritual realities, and therefore they become to us a means of grace. They are not, as symbols, the realities they symbolize, but they have sacramentally a real connection with them, as pictures, and even the very means by which those spiritual realities are depicted and conveyed to the people. Such is the value of these things as symbols. But as types, they pointed beyond the present realities to something future. And so to look at it as simply as possible, a symbol is present, corresponds to something present, a type to something future. Something that would be found under a new arrangement later to be revealed. And that is most evident as we've seen with the priesthood. But in reality it's evident with all of the details. All of them are pointers to something future. In one way or another all of these laws then can be seen to function as either a type or a symbol. And we will find significance and meaning in both directions. Nor can we reduce any to either. For that would be either to ignore 
their significance as precursor, precursors to realities to come, greater realities to come, types. We saw them merely as symbols. Or perhaps to deny that they had any value, present value, to those who partook of them under the Old Covenant. If we saw them merely as types. But seen as both, we can appreciate how they had real value as means of grace to those saints under the Old Covenant. While at the same time appreciating their, their limited value to them as types of great future realities found only under the New Covenant, under the ministry of Jesus Christ. We're not seeking to limit uh, them to one, but to fully appreciate each of these details and laws as both symbols and types. But I want to close now with the words of our Lord in Luke chapter 24, and especially verses 27 through 25. And I want to notice something that he says there. Luke uh, chapter 24 Verses 25 through 27. And this, uh, again, as a conclusion to what is now the prelude to the ceremonial law. This is what the Lord says to those two disciples on the Maus Road. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Remember, he had just been crucified. And they were having difficulty understanding the significance of that and wondering, had he really been raised? And then he, uh, we find in summary form Luke saying, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Do you notice there that he begins with Moses? Why? Because it is there, or I should say here, with respect to Exodus, that the revelation of Christ in the Old Testament really begins in earnest. And it is so clear, in fact, and so plain, it really almost defies explanation that anyone could be a believer or a disciple of Jesus Christ and not see it. That in the cross, there was a revelation of what was present in the very ceremonial laws which God gave Moses on the mountain. And so I close this prelude by saying, as we begin this new section, are you like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Are you slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures have to say about Jesus? Do you still see any difficulty in believing that he should suffer in order to enter into his glory? That is to say, into the true heavenly tabernacle as a great high priest on our behalf in the presence of God ever to live as our intercessor. Well, God willing, these are the very truths that we are about to explore and to consider together. The truths that tell us why Christ, when he came, did what he did, suffered what he suffered, and rose again on the third day. As Paul says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is the truth which will be plainly on display in these chapters to come. And, uh, and uh, amen. Let us uh, stand together and sing in response to God's word, hymn number 53.